everyone and welcome to History of the Batman where we relive the defining moments of one of the most iconic figures in comic book art and literature, the Batman. I am your host London and I am officially back. I know I have been away for a few weeks due um, on a hiatus and there's been format change to the podcast but for the better. There will be more amazing guests and we will continue to talk about batman and there will even be perhaps a new co-host um the only major change is that i am no longer under the meltdown call uh, comics podcast umbrella um they are still my extended family and i first wanted to just thank them so much for helping me start this whole podcast journey that i'm on now and making me feel comfortable doing the show and bringing more of Batman's amazing history to you guys in this form so I want to thank Meltdown and they like I said they will always be my family but we are on to better things and I am very excited to continue the weekly hopefully weekly maybe bi-weekly episodes talking about our favorite character we have an amazing way to return to the podcast for this episode we are talking with writer for both Marvel and DC Comics, and he wrote one of the most essential Batman runs, not just in the Bronze Age of the 1970s, but all, I think of all time. We are here with Steve Englehart. Hi, Steve. Hi, how are you? Good. How are you doing? Good. Thank you so much for coming on. I know the listeners are going to be very excited to hear us talk about your work. I am personally a huge fan, and I think for those who love the current comics right now or the current media, whether it's TV or film, your writing, especially for Batman, has been a huge influence on what we take in today. So before we really get into those essential books, I always like to talk to our guests and kind of see where they began their influence in comics. And so did you grow up reading comic books? I did, yeah. Um, um, that was in the 50s, and there basically was just the DC trio of Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. Right. I mean, there was also Martian Manhunter and, you know, a few guys off in the corner, but it was just basically those three when it came to superheroes. Um, and then I outgrew comics the way kids do, and then I got back into them in the 60s, um, by way of Marvel, if I may say, but uh, um, and the great thing about comics in the '60s was there were a lot of them, and they were all ten, maybe twelve cents. Um, so it was easy to kind of read all the Marvels and all the DCs and all the Charltons and all the Gold Keys and so on and so forth. So I, when I got back into comics, I was just immersed in comics for a, for a long time. So how did you find that writing comics was your passion? By accident, basically. Um, I wanted to be an artist. I was always struck by the art. I'm a big fan of Dick Sprang's back in the day. Yes. Um, and, and, and other people. And, and so it was always my idea of being a comic book artist. Um, 
but through a long series of circumstances, which are fascinating, but <laughs> but but are long, um, I ended up on staff at Marvel, and um, uh, Gary Friedrich, who was a writer um, of some books, decided he didn't want to write a six-page monster story that he'd been given, so they kind of looked around and in the Marvel bullpen and said, you, over there, you want to write this thing? And I said, well, sure, whatever. And I liked writing it, and they liked what I wrote, so then they said, you want to write more stuff? And then, you know, that's how I ended up going down that road. So tell us a little bit about your work on uh, Marvel characters from Doctor Strange to the Avengers to Captain America and your experiences with working with the artists on those books. Well, um, uh, Marvel in those days, um, they gave people complete creative freedom. I've, I've talked about this for years and years and years because it's so amazing that they would just say, here, you're writing Captain America, do whatever you want to do, because there was nothing outside of comics in those days. There was no, you know, there were a couple bad Captain America movies, and there was a Batman TV show, of course, you know, but I mean, basically there was, comics was was as far as you were going to go, and so nobody really thought much about um, anything outside of comics, and so all you had to do was entertain the comic book audience, um, and this is again just sort of inside baseball but when Stan Lee uh, first hired Roy Thomas and Denny O'Neill to be his assistants he drilled them apparently unmercifully on making them sound exactly like him because everything to that point had been by him and if other people were going to write it it had to have that Marvel style which was basically his style right so it's so it's particularly interesting to me that when Roy became the editor-in-chief he instituted the policy of complete creative freedom, sound however you want to sound, you know. Um, so it was my experience, my very fortunate experience, to kind of be handed the keys to a number of cars and just told, you know, if you crash them, <laughs> you're, you're out of here. But if you don't crash them, you can drive them however you want to drive them. And so I wrote all those different characters um, and got to explore, you know, I never had to say, oh, well, maybe I can't do that, or maybe there's a problem if I go down this road or whatever. I had, I just went wherever the stories wanted to take me and tried to make each character, you know, uh, stand on his or her own feet. So that's what I learned to do. I mean, and, and I may be jumping the gun, but I would just say that's when, when Jeanette Kahn, um, hired me at D.C., that's what she wanted me to bring over, was that complete creative freedom and, and revamp all the Justice League characters. And, and again, I'm, I'm jumping way out ahead. But no, <laughs> no, you're fine. That is characters. a great said, okay, segue. Okay, but I want to do Batman specifically because I've always loved Batman. And mm -hmm. So, you know, but that's one thing just led to another. So when you did go to D.C., well, first of all, how... Um, how exactly did you make the jump from Marvel to DC? Did you want to do that? Were you kind of comfortable with Marvel, or did you want a change from different publications? How um, did that happen? I, well, kind of somewhere in the middle of all that. <laughs> I, I was very comfortable at Marvel. I was very happy at Marvel. Uh, the, everything took place in New York in those days, and again, the companies were not physically that far apart, a couple of blocks. Um, uh, everybody knew everybody. I mean... If you worked exclusively for Marvel, there was still no problem with 
dropping by D.C. and hanging out with your friends up there. Or, you know, I mean, so it was never, I was never like barred from D.C. or unable to go there. But I mean, I was happy with Marvel. And then there was an editorial shakeup at Marvel, and I didn't like the way um, things went down. So I uh, decided to leave comics altogether and um, go. I want my wife had traveled in Europe before we'd gotten married, and I thought, that sounds like a good idea. I'd like to do that. So I thought, screw it, you know. I'll let comics go, and I'll just go travel in Europe, and when I come back, I'll figure out what I'm going to do. And right at that time, Jeanette called me up and said, we'd really like you to come over here and revamp all the Justice League characters. Do for them what you did for the Avengers, was the way she put it. And and I said, well, you know, I'm already planning to go to Europe. Um, And she said, well, how long can we get? And I said, well... You know, I mean, I can probably write a year's worth of stuff before I go. And she said, that'll be fine. So um, um, once that jump had been made, I mean, I was excited about redoing all the Justice League characters. Um, and I was particularly excited about doing the Batman. I had, I at Marvel, I had created a character called the Shroud, who was kind of a combination Batman and Shadow um character and mm-hmm. I remember thinking at that time well I'm never going to write the Batman so you know this is as close as I'm going to get I'll do that um, but it was you know all of a sudden yeah there was a whole new universe that I could play in if only for a year you know so so when you went on the Justice League book and they asked you to kind of change up the characters did you try to play by a certain I don't know playbook of working on the Avengers and then going to Justice League, did it seem kind of different in terms... They're all different characters, and they all are three-dimensional. So right. how did you go about kind of changing up the Justice League at, from what it was? Well, I mean, again, the Marvel characters were much more three-dimensional, to use to use the term you just used. The DC characters were pretty two-dimensional. I mean, they were basically icons in costumes, and... You know, some good writers had had written them before me and all that, but but the general DC approach at that point, I mean, DC is always very corporate, and they, you know, they'd been the number one company for a long time. Uh, Marvel had passed them by by this point in time, and um, um, I had only been working at Marvel for like a few months when Marvel surpassed DC in sales, and I remember we all went out to dinner and celebrated at DC's favorite restaurant. (laughs) 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 That was the Marvel's publisher's decision. But um, so DC was in a situation where for a long time all they had to do was roll out Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman and they'd be number one. And all of a sudden, you know, Marvel was getting a lot more uh, uh, fans and, and, and sales and all that kind of stuff. But DC didn't have any sort of there was no institutional memory to draw on about what do you do in this situation because they'd never been in that situation. And, in fact, that's, I think, why they hired, I'm pretty sure that's why they hired Jeanette Kahn to come in and sort of shake things up and try to get some new energy. And the first thing she did, as it turns out, was hire me. Um, um, so it was basically, you know, as she said, do do what you did with the Avengers, do it for the Justice League. And so I did take, you know, I, I do take every character as 
you know, I take it seriously as to who they are and, and so forth. I'm not one of those guys to come in and go, I'm here now, everything's out the window, and we're just going to start from scratch. So, I, you know, I mean, I picked them up, but I, but I really tried to, like, say, okay, let's look a lot deeper into them, um, see what else we can find that, that, you know, might be there but hadn't been touched on to this point. Um, so that was the thing. I mean, I tried to, you know, I, I didn't try to turn you know, Batman into Daredevil or anything like that. I, I wanted Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman and Green Lantern and Green Arrow and all those guys to be, um, you know, hopefully good examples of what they sort of intrinsically were, you know, but just make mm-hmm. them more accessible and more human and more, you know, just looser and, and more fun to be around. Um so that was that was my thing, and and so she wanted me to revamp all these guys, and I you know I, I said okay, but I looked at it and I thought well, if I'm going to give each one of them a deeper look every time we see them, and do a story with a beginning, middle, and an end, um, that's going to be kind of tough in a standard um, comic book. They were only 17 pages, the right. normal comics were only 17 pages at that point and i thought well man that's an entire group of people in depth that's so i said what i'd like to do is a monthly double-sized book 34 pages a month um and again i could get pretty much anything i asked for i mean i i don't mean that in some sort of arrogant way but i mean they had they had brought me over there with the idea that i was going to like figure out how to make all this work better so if I said this is what I need, I generally uh, would be accommodated. And so Dick Dillon was was had been the artist on the Justice League, and Dick Dillon, fortunately, was somebody who could draw 34 pages a month. And so um, it's funny. I I later at Marvel in the in the 2000s proposed a similar solution to a similar problem. Um, Marvel was interested in in doing the Ultraverse stuff from Malibu and and wanted to do this you know the Strangers as a as a bigger book and I said you know here's what I'd like to do monthly double sized and they said oh man nobody nobody who's any good can draw 34 pages and anybody who can draw 34 pages isn't any good um, that was their assessment of of the art at the time and and you know and I said Dick Dillon and he said oh but he's you know he was old school he could do that kind of thing. There's nobody around who does that kind of thing anymore. So, but I was in the right place at the right time again. So um, I had Dick, which I, you know, I really liked because Dick, you know, was one of the stalwarts. Mike Sikowski, you know, there other, but there had been people who had had long runs on the Justice League, and and Dylan was one of them. And and so I I was very happy to work with, you know, a legitimate Justice League. Uh, guy, I mean, you know, if they'd handed me George Perez, I wouldn't have been like upset about the whole thing. But I, you know, but I liked working with Dylan, and, and he could draw 34 pages a month. So that's what we did. We did a monthly double-sized book, and that gave me the chance to, um, again, really get into depth um, with these characters and still have a story. You know, so. So working on all these characters in Justice League, once you started writing stories for Batman, did you kind of 
while you're working on Justice League, think about the Batman character and saying, oh, I would like this as a solo story for him? Or did that ever cross your mind when you were approached to do Batman stories for Detective Comics? No, not really. I mean, I saw the Batman thing as its own series. I mean, right from the start, I was looking at it with the idea that I, you know, again, I only had a certain number of issues, and I and I thought, um, and it was going to be seven was the original idea. Uh, it was Detective was bi-monthly, but they had an extra issue in the summer, so there were going to be seven issues. And I said, that's the only seven issues of Batman that I'm ever going to write. So if I'm going to do you know, if I'm going to make myself happy and satisfy all my bat urges and all that, then I've got to, like, work out something that'll run seven issues and have a beginning and a middle and an end and, and, and so forth. Um, he was appearing in the Justice League at the time, but I used him there more as, um, you know, part of... He, I didn't relegate anybody to the background, including him, but, I mean, I was charged with getting in depth with Aquaman and and you know that kind of thing so mm -hmm. Batman didn't have to play as big a role um, I don't think I did a Batman centric story in the Justice League but he was you know but he was he was a solid part of the team and I tried to make him work as a member of the team but I wasn't trying to do Batman stories over there I, I was satisfied with the with the the one Batman story I was doing in detective and then um just to clarify it was supposed to be seven issues and then um the sales the initial sales and all this stuff were good enough that they slipped a second a second issue into the summer uh and so it ended up being eight issues but that again that was after that i was i was out of there so <laughs> So when you started to work on Batman, it seems like the 70s seemed to bring the character back to its more pulp and gothic roots because the 50s was kind of the weird science fiction stories. And then right. the 60s, especially with the TV show, turned very campy and very lighthearted. And I think with other writers like Dennis O'Neill and artists like Neil Adams and bringing those stories, Batman and Joker, back to a much darker place. Did you see that the 70s or that era was kind of trying its best to move away from the campiness? Did you see it from the artists and writers you worked with? Did DC say, this is what we're going for? Or did you kind of know just off of what you wanted to do with the character that I want to bring it back to the really like the dark and dark night? Yeah, that's yeah, that's. I mean, it was it was sort of up to me, as I say. I mean, they it, and so, I mean, part of that is if they come to you and say we want you to do something, um, sort of behooves you to do it. So I wasn't like asking other people, you know, what what should I be doing? But I mean, I'd read all this stuff, and Neil Adams was like, you know, my favorite um, artist, um, and and had loved the stuff that he and Denny had done. But I did think that it was still. Um, you know, the Joker was not yet a homicidal maniac. Their Joker was, you know, was more intense, but he was, but he was not as dark as I wanted to go. And there was still sort of Bruce Wayne, the playboy in the penthouse with the tree in the middle of it, or not, not the penthouse, the building with the tree. Um, it had, it was, it was kind of, in my estimation, it was kind of like halfway. I mean, they had gone in that direction, but they were still kind of tied to a kind of um, 
I don't want to say middle of the road, but I mean, it, it wasn't dark yet. It wasn't, you know, it got darker, but it wasn't dark as I saw it. Uh, and so I really wanted to go back to the pulp stuff. Whenever they'd done, there'd only been a few reprints at that point um, of the stuff from the early years. But whenever there were, it was very dark looking on the page, lots of black ink, lots of, you know, all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so I, I said, can I get copies of the, you know, the original detective comic stuff? And, and DC had a fabulous library, which nobody ever really used. Um, and so they went in and they made Xeroxes of, of all the, of the, you know, like the first year of detective comics. Um, and I guess a couple from the first Batman comics issues. Um, I always say this is what started the whole archive <laughs> edition, with, with, you know, because they were like, really, you want to see this stuff? Nobody ever looks at it. <laughs> uh, so I got that stuff and was able to read it. And, of course, when you read those stories, which are now, I guess, more, gen- I mean, clearly they are more available, but there's Hugo Strange with his monsters, and there's mm-hmm. vampires, and there's, you know all this kind of stuff, the monk. Um, so I said, yeah, this is the this is the kind of vibe I want. I want that dark thing. And so that's why Hugo Strange jumped into the into the 70s. Because, um, you know, a guy who looks weird with monsters, that, you know, that'll work. But the other thing that I wanted to do was really um, make the Batman, like, a grown-up, for want of a better word. I mean, it was like they had they had said to me there was still the hangover from the TV show. A lot of people out there still thought that Batman was kind of a campy thing, even though right. O'Neill and Adams had been doing what they'd been doing, and Bob Haney over in you know and Brave and Bold. I mean, but the general public conception was, yeah, we saw that TV show. We know what Batman's all about. So I really wanted to like get him out of that and make him an adult, uh, not a campy, you know, overgrown boy. And all those those things came together. But but one thing that had always bothered me as a reader, even as a little kid in the 50s reading this stuff, was whenever a girlfriend got involved, these guys would kind of like blush and stammer and, and change the subject. And I thought, even as a kid, I thought, I don't think grown-ups act like that, you know? <laughs> right. Um, um, I thought that's, that's kind of silly. So I, I came up with the idea of let's give Batman a sex life, you know? Let's, um, I mean, not just a girlfriend, but a, but an actual, you know, a, a, a physical grown-up relationship right. within the comics code, you know? Within yes. the comics code, had to be. Um, and so that's where Silver St. Cloud came from. I wanted a woman who was a strong enough to be the girlfriend of the Batman, um, and uh, I wanted to indicate that they were sleeping together. So I was, I was on the one hand, trying to get the real pulp essence back into the whole thing, and on the other hand, I wanted the guy who was facing that to be a legitimate human being, and because uh, I was more interested in Bruce Wayne... You know, where is his head? Where is Bruce Wayne's head at to have gone through all this stuff, rather than just here's a guy in a bat costume? I mean, the guy in the bat costumes—that's that's a cool concept. But right. I wanted I wanted to see more about who Bruce was, and so um, taking 
ambiance from the 40s and sex from the 70s and, you know, whatever else I brought to the table. That's how the whole, the Batman thing just kind of formed itself in that regard. And I knew I was going to do the Joker and I knew I was going to do the Penguin and I knew I, you know, because I only had a few issues and I wanted to hit, you know, I wanted to hit the high points, so... Right. So, well, let's talk about Silver St. Cloud a little bit. First of all, I love the name. I think that is one of my favorite names mm. in all of uh, Batman's mythology. So where did that name come from? Is there a partic- Was there inspiration for that? Or you just thought that just sounds like a love interest type of name? Well, both, actually. I mean, I, what I, it comes from the moon. I mean, silver. Sil- the name Silver comes from, like, the moon, because the moon seems like a Batman kind of thing. And I was, you know, I, I was trying to work within whatever psychic space I thought the Batman inhabited. Um, and and the whole moon thing, that's just Batman, you know? And so <laughs> and so there came Silver, and then, and then St. Cloud, I think, was a good comic book alliteration. Um, and it also sounds like clouds in front of the moon, but I mean, um, I know specifically the first name came from the moon, and then the rest of it just sort of came trippingly off the tongue after that. Right. So, as you mentioned a little bit earlier, you wanted to really give focus to Bruce Wayne, because I feel that there weren't a lot of stories back then, like during this era, where they would focus on Bruce Wayne and not Batman. You always see him in fighting crime in Gotham, but didn't like talk about the person behind the mask. And so is that one of the reasons why with Silver St. Cloud, you had her discover that Bruce Wayne and Batman are one and the same and gave Batman or Bruce the kind of struggle of trying to decide if he should choose between his heart and being with this woman or giving his heart to justice to kind yeah, of make him more exactly, real. That's exactly it. I, I, um, you know, again, DC would have been, DC was very happy for, for 30 years, I guess I'm trying to do the math. But I mean, up until that point, they were pretty happy with a guy in a costume. You know, I mean, they they were more interested in the Batman than they were in Bruce Wayne. And if I was going to get into Bruce Wayne, um, I had to do the relationship thing, as I say. And then I thought, you know, I mean, if you're sleeping with some guy, you probably know what his face looks like, and and the, the face is only half covered in the bat mask, and and. It just seemed to me that she was sharp enough, you know, the, the character I'd created there was sharp enough to, like, get that, you know. And and uh, so I do, when I'm doing stories, I like to let the characters kind of take the lead. I mean, obviously, if I say to myself, I've got eight issues or seven or whatever I've started out thinking uh, to get something going, you know, and then bring it to an end, I can't just kind of let things wander off into, you know, down alleys or where I don't know where they're going necessarily. But the the more I thought about the relationship end of things, those things suggested themselves. The fact that she would figure out who he was, uh, the fact that he would be faced with that for the first time. Um, I mean, it's a little, it, it, it was a fact that he had never, I mean, as far as we know, he had never slept with anybody for the first 30 years of his existence. So, um, and that was just because DC stories didn't go there. But, right. but uh, you know, I mean, now they were going there. So I, it opened up all these, all these, 
possibilities. And um, and it made you know the it made her a stronger character. I mean, I you know she she had things to do. She was you know she was part of the story. She was part of the action. It wasn't just you know a girlfriend on his arm or anything like that. Um, and the, you know, the more I could make her an interesting character in herself, that, that made for a better story, I thought. Um, and it also, then he had, you know, I mean, he's playing off of her, she's playing off of him, he's playing off of her. Um, there was a lot of stuff that was, that I thought would be fun to work with in there. Right. And, yeah. Yeah, it's not just his interaction with villains or criminals walking around. It's someone that he generally has feelings for and cares about on another level that's not the vigilante level. So right. it makes right. him right. It makes him more of a three dimensional character. Right. Um so you said that since you only had such a short run necessarily on Batman that you chose certain villains or characters to work with and one of the characters um that was a focus and i think issue 474 is deadshot yeah um why did you decide to kind of bring deadshot back who who appeared in 1950 and then you really didn't see him much anymore why did you decide to kind of revisit that character for one of those stories well that was that was the extra issue in effect and that was julie swartz um who was the editor on those books uh, came up with that. Um, you know, they came to me and they said, you know, that thing that you've carefully plotted for seven issues, now you can have eight. So um, I didn't really have a villain in mind for that extra issue. It did work out, I will say, in terms of the Bruce and Silver sort of thing. I was able to, like, stretch things out, um, give more space to the relationship uh, by getting into that eighth issue, by having an extra issue that I wasn't expecting, all of a sudden I could let things breathe a little bit more than than I had been planning for. But I didn't have a villain, and Julie said, "Deadshot." I have no idea why Julie chose Deadshot. As you as you know, I'm sure the original Deadshot wore a tuxedo and six guns. Yes, <laughs> I mean, he was a pretty, you know, I I really don't know. Why Julie said that, but but it's like okay, sure, why not? You know, get somebody from the fifties in there since we've got them from the forties, and then Marshall Rogers, who was doing the art on all this, as it turned out, um, came up with a great costume, and 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 so there you are. Um, I, uh, I yeah, I should mention, you know, because I was under a time frame, and and because I didn't actually have a year, I was doing years worth of stuff, but I was doing it, you know, sort of as fast as I could to get it done. And so, um, you know, I had started the series with with Walt Simonson and Al Milgram, um, and then for whatever reason, Julie decided to switch artists. And uh, I didn't, you know, this was in a day when you didn't, you know, you just took the assignment. I mean, I didn't have any say over who was drawing those books. Um, any more than they had any say over who was writing them. I mean, it was just everybody did his job. Um, so I did not know Marshall and Terry Austin, and I didn't know what their work would be like when I was writing all those scripts. Um, and, you know, I've often said that, you know, if, if they had been handed off to a couple of hacks, the scripts would have been exactly the same, but the books would not have been nearly as, you know, as, as well regarded as they are. So I was very lucky to get... Um, those guys uh, doing the artwork during the bulk of the um, of the run, and the 
one caveat to that is I did not, again, didn't, I wasn't there. I was in Europe. <laughs> While they were drawing that stuff, I was in Europe. But um, I had not heard this until we did Dark Detective 2 um, in the mid-2000s. Um, but DC Editorial hated Marshall and Terry's artwork. Uh, it was very un-DC-like. This is the company that hired Jack Kirby and then redrew his faces, right? I mean, right. They... they, they <laughs> They had a very, uh, very hidebound idea of what things should look like, and and um, anyway, Marshall and Terry didn't fit that mold. And apparently, they got every month they'd turn in their artwork, and then they'd be screamed at for for half an hour about what a terrible job they were doing. Oh wow! So <laughs> I was I was very impressed when I heard this later that they had stuck to their guns. You know that they had you know that they had done what they wanted to do. Yeah. Um. And anyway, but you know, uh, it all came together. Every every it turns as it turned out, Marshall and Terry were both huge Batman fans, and they wanted to do the best Batman they could do. You know, so even though we weren't actually working together at any particular time, then we were all on the same page, and um, you know, right. came together nicely. Yeah, it's funny that you you say that because everyone sees that your work and Marshall Rogers and, and Terry Austin all together, it flowed so well or it came together so beautifully to think that there was some type of discrepancy about the way that their art looked or was it really difficult for you to kind of communicate with them with your story and their work since you weren't in the country <laughs> No, I, I mean, I wrote it all script in advance. As you may, you know, as mm-hmm. you may know, there's two ways to do comics. One of them is called the Marvel style, which nobody uses, including Marvel, anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that was the one where you would, like, tell the artist what the story was in enough detail that he would be able to get it, and then he would go draw it and, lay, you know, tell the story visually the way he wanted to, and then it would come back, and the writer would then write the dialogue to fit the art. Mm -hmm. I always preferred that method because then I was looking at the same pictures that you were going to be looking at, and so I could write it so that it would enhance the art. But the the other way is the script and advance thing, which DC had done forever and which everybody does now, Mm -hmm. which is like a movie script. You know, you say panel one, Batman and the Joker is standing there, Batman says this, Joker says this, that kind of thing. And so then, you know, I had to write, you know, I had to visualize all the art, um, which, because I wanted to be an artist back in the day, it was not that hard for me to do. But, um, and if I may say, I would always visualize my scripts, but I never expected them to look the way I visualized them, because the artist should be able to do what he wants to do. But I knew it could be drawn. I could see, you know, how it could go on the page, so I wasn't asking for stuff that was just too weird to have to you know, fit on a page or, or, you know, right. whatever. <laughs> uh, so I wrote all these things script in advance. And the one thing I found there, because I was a fan of the other way of doing it, and I wasn't too initially thrilled about having to do um, full scripts, but I certainly could control the pacing that way. I mean, I, I you know, the rhythm of the story, the, the beats, all that kind of stuff, was entirely under my control, and so um, uh, I was able to turn in scripts that I thought hit the marks that I wanted to hit. Um, 
but again, a bad artist could have drawn that stuff, and, and it wouldn't have had the impact. And, and nobody can distinguish. I mean, nobody's going to say, wow, you wrote a really good script, but the art let you down. Mm-hmm. They're just going to go, eh, this book wasn't very good. <laughs> um, so uh, there was that. Um, yeah, I just... Uh, and, and, well, I would just say, I'm a big fan of the Marvel style, so-called, mm-hmm. of doing things. Turned out Marshall was not. Marshall liked getting full scripts. Um, he could then sort of noodle around the edges with them, but he really liked it to be all laid out for him up front, which, again, who knew Because at the time that I did it? But he was, in all respects, he was the perfect guy to right. draw that stuff. No, definitely. Um, some that His work um, and Terry Austin and Walt Simonson, all the artists that you worked on for mm. this series, I mean, they totally captured your script. I mean, it, it all flowed together so well. Uh, earlier, you mentioned uh, working on the Joker character. That was one of the characters you for sure in your run wanted to do. And while uh, Neil Adams and Dennis O'Neill kind of tried to make Joker darker than he was in the past couple of decades, you thought that he didn't necessarily get to the darkest point or he wasn't as dark as he could have been. So how did you come up with The Laughing Fish and The Sign of the Joker, those two stories, and try to make that character darker than the Joker's five-way revenge story? Right. Well, if you, you know, again, if you go back to the 40s, the Joker was a homicidal maniac. Right. This was yes. before the comics code, right? I mean, yes. so he could do that kind of stuff. And the other thing I found interesting, I didn't make much use of it, was the first, like, dozen Joker stories, they all end with him either being dead or in jail. Right. And then, and then the next ones all begin with him not actually being dead or escaping from jail. I mean, there was a kind of continuity to the whole thing. Yes. <laughs> uh, until it became so big that they, you know, they had too many Joker stories to pull that off. But, I, you know, I liked... You know, and that's that's classic pulp. You know, he falls to his doom, and then the next time you find out that you know he caught on a ledge or something. Right. You know, <laughs> he swam to uh, shore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, I had the whole pulp thing uh, in my brain, and I knew that I wanted to you know do the climax with the Joker because um, he is the preeminent Batman villain there. You know, I like the Penguin, I like the Riddler, I like the Scarecrow, but, you know, it's the Joker is number one going away for Batman. And so I knew I wanted to do a big Joker finale and was trying to really make him, A, a homicidal maniac, B, like really crazy and really scary. And I say that knowing that, you know, I I sort of took him from, you know, from zero, well, maybe I took him from 30 to 60. And of course, these days he's running around at about 6,000. But, right. <laughs> but, you know, for the time frame, it was, you know, it was a a bold leap forward. Um, and so, I, you know, I'm thinking, okay, to really be the crazy guy, he's got to have like a crazy plan. You know, I mean, my, my take on the Joker is that, that, you know, he's perfectly happy to rob a bank, but he's 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 going to think to himself, yeah, but I'd like to put some ponies in there too, and I, <laughs> you know, and 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 uh, I mean, he's he's 
his brain is going so fast that he's thinking of all this other stuff, and he's he's not kind of like what I said before about writing stories. He's not let just like oh, I want ponies, now what will I do? It's like, no, he figures out what to do with ponies, and mm-hmm. then, you know, he'll do that kind of stuff. So I thought, all right, he's got a plan, but it's got to be nuts. It's got to be It's got to be a plan where you, the reader, immediately go, this makes no sense, you know? <laughs> this, is, this is a nutty plan. And somehow out of that came the fish, you know? Um, fish are sort of, they seem crazy anyway, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, you know, the idea of the Joker fish and the, and, and all that just kind of, again, it's, it's just letting, you know, letting my monkey mind kind of make connections and see where, see where we end up. Right. The Joker was a much darker character, but he still had that kind of essential kind of chaotic plan kind of Mm -hmm. just mayhem it doesn't make sense to anyone else but it makes sense oddly in the joker's mind so i think that's why the fish and the with the joker venom and him trying to copyright a natural resource and that whole thing it seems like that seems crazy but it works for that character exactly yeah i mean that's (laughs) where the copyright thing came from too because i mean anybody's going to look at that and go that may, you know, that's not going to work. But but his thing is, well, if it doesn't, then I'll just kill you. You know, right. I mean, nobody's <laughs> going to actually stop me, um, which is a great great thing for a villain to have in mind. So, um, yeah. And that story, along with other stories from um, your work on on Hugo Strange, those were those became episodes in Batman the Animated Series from right. uh, the Strange Secret of Bruce Wayne and the Laughing Fish. And um, one of the stories that we didn't really get to talk about um, was one of the earlier Batman solo stories, The Night of the Stalker. Right. Uh, I really enjoy that one. That's probably one of my favorite uh, issues by you. I especially like the fact that really Batman doesn't have any dialogue. Well, that was, that was the point, actually. And, I, and I, I have to say, I was I was basically a hired gun on that one. Um, I was rooming, um, or had roomed, I think maybe we'd, we'd gone in different directions by that point. But for a while, I roomed with the artist, Sal Amendola. And Sal was a nice young guy. Um, we were all young then, but I mean, he, he was a nice guy. Um, and he and his brother, I think, came up with that idea, and they ran it past Neil Adams, who gave him some ideas. And eventually, you know, they came to me because Sal and I had been roommates. And they said, you know, we've got this whole thing worked out, but we need you to dialogue it. Or we need somebody to dialogue it, <laughs> like you to do it, because um, none of us is really a writer. And I said, okay, sure, I'd be happy to do that. That was my first Batman story. Um, I didn't have any track record with Batman at that mm-hmm. point. Um, and uh, the, one of the points was that the Batman has no dialogue. So, of course, when I wrote it, I threw in a couple lines of dialogue. <laughs> um, I, you know, I couldn't tell you what I was thinking now, but at the time it seemed like the right thing to do. Um, and Archie Goodwin was the editor, and Archie took it and he said, Nope. <laughs> going to take those lines of dialogue out. Um, so um, eventually it, it came out being, you know, what Sal and his brother Vinny, I think was his name, but I don't remember exactly, you know, what they had wanted to do. And I just was doing, you know, 
by that time I was a professional writer, so I was, you know, I was I was doing my 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 job, um, but I had nothing to do with it and and uh, with any of the thing up until it came time to dialogue it. Uh, so a lot of people like that story, but I but I try to make it clear that it was those guys who were responsible for it. Was it a little weird when you put in a few lines of dialogue and they said, no, the story doesn't have it? Did, did you feel as if the story should have had a little bit of dialogue or the dialogue that you gave? Or do you think it was the right decision? That Oh, uh, I think it was the right decision. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously, when I wrote it, I thought that it needed that bit of dialogue. But when, you know, they had told me in the beginning that there was not supposed to be any dialogue. And so what didn't come as a shock when Archie goes, no, you're not. <laughs> We're not supposed to be doing that, and and we were able to take out. I mean, we were able to to. I couldn't tell you now when or where, but I mean, when we whatever we took out, we were able to cover some other way, or it didn't really need to be there, or whatever. Um, but I really enjoyed. I mean, I really enjoyed writing it because uh, it was my first Batman story. Um, it wasn't my Batman story, but it was the first one that I worked on, and and um, I really had a good time writing it. Um, uh, but it, yeah, it's just it's a it's a standalone thing that those guys did, and it's and you know it's too bad um, Sal didn't you know continue to have a career in comics, um, and I and I really don't know why whether he just wanted to do something else or or whatever because he was certainly as that story shows he was certainly had all the chops that he needed in order to do it. But right. um, I was. You know, I'm. I was glad we. You know, we'd had a good time rooming together, and I was glad to to help out on that. And I'm glad that you know it. it if for nothing else, you know, people people know Sal Amendola's name because of that story. Right, and that story I think was an influence on Tim Burton's Batman, the the first movie, the '89 film. And didn't you uh, help script a little bit in terms of getting the script kind of greenlit, kind of forward that? Well, I don't know about greenlit. Well, yeah, actually, the one that did get greenlit, um, they, you know, after the after the the detective run, mm-hmm. mine and Marshall's and Terry's, um, they decided to make a movie out of it, um, and so for the next ten years, um, they had various Hollywood screenwriters adapting those comic that that story into a film. Um, and after 10 years, D.C. came to me and said, people have been trying this for 10 years, and they really haven't got whatever it was that you did. They haven't got the mood right. They haven't got the feeling right. So we'd like you to get involved in the movie. Um, I found out much later, much too much later, that that was illegal under Writers Guild rules. Uh, you can't have a subcontractor. Uh, you know, I should have been working directly for Warner Brothers, and I should have been paid a you know a guild minimum or whatever for that kind of thing but i didn't know any of that and so i you know i ended up doing it under contract to dc um and and therefore not getting <laughs> not getting paid mm. the way a movie writer would get paid but in any event um we did get it you know into shape the original because they wanted to have the joker and the penguin and robin all in the first movie and i'm oh, like wow. that's a lot of stuff you that's know? ambitious I mean, you know <laughs> um so we eventually got it down to you know to where it was supposed to be um and throughout all that stuff 
the girlfriend was called Silver St. Cloud, and the and the political boss was Boss Thorne. And then, you know, after I was done with my end of it and they went ahead to shoot it, somebody somewhere said, mm, let's change the names. So, um, uh, I mean, uh, Kim Basinger is clearly Silver St. Cloud from her looks right. and, and actions. <laughs> But she's called Vicky Vale, you know. Mm-hmm. Boss Thorne is called Boss Grissom for no particular, you know. But it, but DC again, it's that corporate thing. They don't like, you know. I could I could go on about this, but <laughs> but I mean, they don't like it to be thought of as Englehart Rogers Austin's Batman. They want it to be thought of as DC's Batman, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, so they changed the name so that it wouldn't be clearly what it was, which was an adaptation of, of our stuff. Right. But on the other hand, I mean, the fact that back in the day I had thought I want Batman to be an adult with a sex life and and, and be somebody who can, you know, appeal to more than overgrown boys, that came through in the movie, and, and that, you know, I think was sort of the genesis of the entire... Um, superhero film thing that is happening now. The fact that you could sell these characters to grown-ups um, uh, and you could go see a Batman movie and you wouldn't have to apologize for it afterwards. <laughs> um, they, you know, I only was involved with the first one. The second one, in, in you know, in my opinion, with the Penguin, was not quite as good, but but pretty decent. And then they went mm-hmm. downhill fast. After that, <laughs> they they kind of went back to the whole camp. You right, know, Schumacher. Yeah, all that, you know. So it took a while for, you know, people to kind of get their act together, and and really probably was Marvel Studios that that Mm -hmm. was able to, you know, to take that vibe and run with Well, I guess Sony back earlier, but I mean, um, but if you look, you know, if you look back on it, that, that, in effect, I I was creating something that could be a movie, and then it was a movie, and then that sort of opened up doors. Um, I mean, I've, I've talked to various people in, in Hollywood, you know, who say, well, you know, I was 12 years old when I saw that movie, but I thought to myself, oh, I want to do movies, and that sounds like <laughs> a good thing. And, you know, so it took a while, but we got there. No, I mean, your stories, they influence the movies and, and a lot of the animated series from, mm-hmm. like I said, animated series to Justice League and with your Justice League of America run, um, it's, did you want to do a longer run than seven or eight issues? Um, or were you like, I'm content with kind of having this story in this in this eight-issue run, and I'm, I'm content with the characters I've chosen and the storyline that I've, that I've picked out? Well, yeah, I, I'm one of those guys. I mean, I wrote you know captain america for 3 or 4 years wrote the avengers for 3 or 4 years i'm i'm old school enough to kind of like to settle in and and really just explore as long as i can explore um so in a normal world i would have stayed on justice league and batman and and continued to do it but going in i knew that i only had a certain amount of time to do it and they knew that i only had a certain amount of time to do it so i mean everything was sort of designed with the idea that it would come to an end um in a certain number of issues and so i never thought about um 
you know, what would I do in issue nine? Because mm-hmm. there never was going to be an issue nine, you know? Right. You kind of uh, set your mind to this is what I have to work with, so this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. And I mean, the Justice League, too. I, we didn't talk about this, but I mean, it, it came to an end. Right. I mean, I, I brought that to a conclusion mm-hmm. when I left. Um, same kind of deal. <clears throat> I just knew that, you know, it all had to tie up and, and, and be done with at a certain point. Um but if, you know, certainly if I had not been thinking I was going to leave comics behind forever, which is what I thought, and um, and wasn't planning, you know, to go to Europe and all that, um, I would have just continued to write those books, you know. Well, if you did have a little bit more time or had more issues, is there a particular Batman character that you would have really wanted to do a short arc on? Well, I kind of, again, the Joker is is way out ahead and the and the penguin is is a strong number two and after that well there's the riddler and and you know there's the mad hatter and there's tweedledum and tweedledee i mean that there's you you start to run out of of classic villains fairly quickly <laughs> when i did do uh dark detective two the, right. the thing in the mid 200s mm-hmm. i did the scarecrow um um uh, and so I, I did a I did a uh, Legends of the Dark Knight that had the Riddler in it, mm-hmm. um, so I was able to do the other characters, you know, in other in other arenas, um, and and so each one of them did have an arc. I mean, I had a Scarecrow arc, I had a Riddler arc, um, I did a Mad Hatter story that they've never published that I really think is a great Mad oh. Hatter. I mean, you know, if I say so myself, <laughs> I really like I what I was able that. to do with the Mad Hatter. <laughs> Uh, he was much scarier than he had been, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you'd have to you'd have to call up DC and ask them why it's never been published. <laughs> it was all done. Uh, in fact, it was even drawn. Um, um, and I am totally blanking on the name of the guy who did it. And I'm really sorry. I apologize to him because <laughs> I don't I don't have it. But I mean, he drew it. I mean, this thing has been written and drawn. It's just sitting in a drawer somewhere. So. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, um, uh, you know, over time I got to do more Batman, um, but certainly at the time that in the seventies, I thought that was all that I would ever do. Well, actually I figured, you know, when I come back from Europe, maybe I'll get some more work, but that's when I ran into the whole thing about, we don't want it to be too identified with you guys, you know? Mm. So, um, you know, you live and learn, you work for who you work for. Right. Uh, so I think after working on Batman and really diving into the character and not just the the mask, but actually the man behind the mask, uh, what did you learn any, I guess, like real life either lessons through this character and trying to make him a relatable three-dimensional character to the reader? Do you feel that he can be a more relatable character than, let's say, the other superheroes that you've worked with? I don't know. No, I would. No, I'm okay. I wouldn't say <laughs> that he could be more relatable than the other people I worked with because, mm-hmm. you know, some of those Marvel characters are kind of, <clears throat> you know, they wear their heart on their sleeves and right. they, and they, you know, I mean, um, or they're funny or, you know, there's other ways that they can, there's places they can go that, that he can't go. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I saw him as very human, but again, he's very, my, my thing on the Batman because, you know, over the years, people will say, oh, well, the Joker's crazy, so obviously the Batman's crazy. And I, I totally reject 
that you know, in my personal opinion, you mm-hmm. know, the, the Batman that I wrote, he's like wound as tight as he can go because it makes him um, just so much more dangerous and and you know hyper aware and everything. But he knows. I give I I I see Bruce Wayne as smart enough to know that if he went over the edge, he would become less effective. And so he holds himself right there on the edge, mm-hmm. um, and it's that tension um, of you know that intensity and tension that he's got going on, which was why then making him human was interesting because a human being who does that um, is more interesting to me than you know than a fascist robot or you know um, things that he's been in other incarnations. Um, so. Uh, I he was a hu- he's a human being who's very tightly wound. That's that's the guy that I wanted to write. So I mm-hmm. wasn't trying to write uh, you know Aquaman or Hawkeye or the Beast or any you know uh, the Vision and the Witch, you know, I mean any of that kind of stuff where people could could express themselves more easily. Um and I mean that's what I was just touching on right at the you know at the end when when in the last issue when he goes into Silver St. Cloud's hotel room and he's like, should I tell her? Should I agree with her? You know, mm-hmm. But does, maybe she doesn't know. I mean, it, it, it's that kind of he because he's tightly wound, he doesn't totally know what you know, how a normal person would react in this right. kind of situation, <laughs> you know? Um, and I, I don't think he regrets it. I don't think he, you know, he, I mean, he decided very early on this is where I come back to believing in the characters. I mean, because I'm just relating what other people had done before me. But I mean, you know, he decided on that street in the middle of the night he was going to, or maybe soon thereafter, that he was going to avenge his parents and strike fear into the hearts of criminals and, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, he's, that's what he's done since he was like 12 years old, however old he was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. In any telling. Um, so he grew up with, with that monomaniacal goal. And... Um, but I never, I, I never thought that he lost the humanity because you know it, you can't, you can't be inhuman and mourn the death of your parents. You know what I mean? It's like you've got to be, you've got to be. Well, in that in, in that thing that I dialogued for 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 Salamandola, the, at the end it says he, you know, he is that boy again or something like that. I mean, mm-hmm. he's he is he's that kid on the street, but he's grown up with one goal in mind and and. and so, I mean, that particular character is that particular character. You know, he's not anybody else. Anybody's, but he's not. He's not loosey goosey, shall we say? <laughs> well, I think the way that you wrote Batman and how much of a three-dimensional character he is is it kind of issued in i think the really modern take on batman going into the 80s and the batman that we read today so i completely know why your run even if it was somewhat short was so essential to understanding the character and so i just want to thank you for that and i'm very glad that you wrote this batman (laughs) thank you Yes, so thank you so much for coming on, and I will let everyone know the different trade paperbacks. Your stories are in several. <laughs> yeah, there's never, there's, again, you know, it's just a fact of life that there's never been like a uh, 
sort of definitive reprint of that stuff. It's it's you have to kind of look around to find it. But. Right. Um, I think the one that, or at least I have, is it's Batman: Strange Apparitions, which I love that title. Dude, I mean, you didn't decide to name that collection that. Right? No, not at all. No. Right. Do you think that that's fitting or no? Or were you like, huh, what, what does that mean? Did, yeah, did that kind of fit? Kind of there. I, you know, I mean, there is obviously, there is an apparition in, right. in that thing. But um, I think I think if you set out to find, you know, Englehart Rogers and Austin's Batman detective run, you wouldn't necessarily look for it under the name Strange Apparition. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, I mean, so I think it's a, that's a little, uh, I, I would have chosen a more a more on-the-nose name if I'd been involved with it. But um, What would you have called it? Oh, I have no idea. I mean, when, we, <laughs> when, when they, you know, when they came to us and said, do it again, finally, after 30 years, mm-hmm. um, I, the whole Dark Detective name came up at that point. Uh, I would have liked to have done something other than dark because of Dark Knight, mm-hmm. but there isn't anything else other than dark, so it was Dark Detective. But that, you know, that's an that's what I was hoping would become kind of the uh, the overall name for all that stuff. Right. Um, but it's been so hit and miss in the reprint thing that hmm. you know, I don't know. Well, maybe in the future they'll rename it and put it out again in collection you never know (laughs) might be something they can work with a different name but i think more fitting is that uh your stories are also in the collection the greatest batman stories ever told which that's very fitting (laughs) i think that works (laughs) because it's definitely up there and it's a collection that if you're a batman fan and want to read comics which i know a lot of people who listen to the show and the and read the blog and everything they always want to jump into batman comics they don't know where to start or what stories they should read to really understand the character beyond just the movies or the tv shows and i always recommend your work so i think if you can pick up the collection of either and the greatest batman stories ever told um, the laughing fish and sign of the joker are also in the greatest joker stories ever told and of course batman strange apparitions you can pick it up at the dc store and on amazon and pretty much anywhere they sell books so pick it up if you haven't read it and i want to thank you um steve Engelhart, for being on the show with us i really appreciate it oh, it was fun thank you for having me yes thank you so much <laughs> I am a huge fan of Sting Engelhart's work, and I think that if you haven't read um, comics from the Bronze Age or in the 60s or the 50s, and yet you are a huge fan of the current runs by Tom King or Scott Snyder, Greg Capullo, James Tinney IV, and all of the modern comics, the modern Batman detective comics right now, I think writers like Engelhart and Dennis O'Neill and artists like Marshall Rogers, though they are all to thank for the modern Batman that we enjoy today. And since this is History of the Batman, we celebrate all different eras of this character. And Englehart's run is a definite must, especially if you want to jump into Batman comics, if you want to read these stories that have been adapted into TV. I am a huge fan of Batman the Animated Series, as many of you know that have listened. And The Laughing Fish is one of the best episodes. I think in that episode, Mark 
Hamill's laugh as the Joker is the best out of the whole series. But it is definitely a must read. And like I said, you can look on Amazon.com or DC Comics website or the DC Comics app, Comixology, all the different places. You can either read the physical copy or the digital download. You can pick up Batman Strange Apparitions. You can pick up The Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told, Shadow of the Batman Volumes 1 through 4, The Greatest Joker Stories Ever Told, and all of those books have this Engelhart run in Detective Comics. So it's a definite must read. And I want to thank everyone from coming back and listening. And like I said, hopefully we will have more regular episodes. It won't be a month at a time that I have a new episode. And if you like listening to these Batman sessions, I think you can become a Gothamite and follow on Instagram at History of the Batman. You can follow on Twitter at Hist of the Batman and on Facebook at History of the Batman. You can also subscribe to this podcast if you haven't. And you can also subscribe to my youtube channel which is history of the batman and i am also doing videos for dc comics dc verified fan channel where i do several history sessions about your favorite batman arcs the latest one i did was for the history of nightfall to celebrate batman nightfall omnibus volume one that came out april 11th so you should definitely pick that up especially if you're a huge fan of batman in the early 90s kelly jones who we've had on the show is one of my favorite artists and he actually did a brand new wraparound cover for the omnibus and it looks amazing so definitely pick that up and yes check me out on all social media and until next time we will have more history of the batman soon remember it is all about peace love and batman